the Old Testament reading is Isaiah 35. The New Testament reading is Luke 7, 18-23. This is the sermon text, Luke 7, 18-23. First, though, Isaiah 35. And as you're turning there, there's a couple of things that I wanted to remind you of. First of all, do not forget the catechism question for the week. Question 100, how is baptism rightly administered? Answer, baptism is rightly administered by immersion or dipping the whole body of the party in water into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit according to Christ's institution and the practice of the apostles and not by sprinkling or pouring of water or dipping some part of the body after the tradition of man. That is a mouthful of an answer there, isn't it? But I remind you of this, uh, parents especially, I remind you that we are to be teaching these questions and answers to our children. I will be uh, delivering a very brief sermon in the afternoon service on uh, this question and answer, uh, so please come. I continue to call it the afternoon service, even though it will not be afternoon today. It will start at about 11 o'clock. Um, but do please uh, remember our catechism and the lessons that are presented each week. The Christian faith is here presented, and it is important that we keep a focus on these things. Also, I wanted to encourage you to have your Bibles open before you as we read Isaiah 35 and Luke 7. And to keep them open, uh, perhaps a good custom would be to come to church a little bit early and to look at what the sermon text will be in the Old Testament reading and put some bookmarks there so that you could follow along as the sermon is presented to you. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word from Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf, un deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals, where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Let us go now to the New Testament reading, which is Luke seven, eighteen through 23, our sermon text for today. The disciples of John reported all these things to him, that is to John. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, 
Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he, that is Jesus, healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of his word this morning. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me, Jesus says. To be offended by Jesus is to fall back from Him. To be offended by Jesus is to recoil from Him. To be offended by Jesus is to stumble over Him. And many, as I'm sure you know, are offended by Jesus. And people are offended by Jesus for many reasons. Some fall back from Him because He opposes their way of life and exposes their sinfulness. Others recoil from Him because of who He claims to be, the Son of God incarnate and the only way to the Father. And others stumble over Him because He was so lowly and humble in His incarnation. He claimed to be the Promised One, the King, the Messiah, and yet He was poor despised and rejected by men. He suffered in this world, and He calls His followers to suffer in this world too. And because of this, uh, there are many who are offended by Jesus. These are only a few examples of reasons that people may be offended by Jesus. Now, to be clear, Jesus was not an offensive person in the way we typically use that word. Never was He obnoxious or rude. But in another sense, Jesus is the most offensive person ever to live. When men and women are told about Jesus, His person and work, when they are exposed to His teachings and confronted with His claims, they are forced to make a decision concerning Him. They must choose to either receive Him or reject Him, to run to Him or recoil from Him, to follow Him or to fall back from Him. And we know that Jesus is offensive to many. Many, when they hear about Christ, His claims, His teachings, do recoil from Him and fail to run to Him as they ought. And, good friends, we should remember that if God were to leave us to ourselves, all would reject, recoil, and fall back from Jesus. Left to ourselves, we would all be offended by Him. And the Apostle John explains why. He does so beautifully in John 3.19. He speaks of Jesus when he says, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. And so again I say to you, if God were to leave us to ourselves in the darkness of our sin, we would all run from Jesus just as darkness runs from light. But God by His grace has determined to call some to Himself by His Word and Spirit through faith in Jesus the Messiah. This is what Jesus refers to when He says in John 6.44, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws Him, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Left to ourselves, we would all be offended by Jesus, 
But God, by His grace, draws some to Himself through Christ, and these will be raised up on the last day. When the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus to ask if He was really the one, He sent them back with these words, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And I take this to be both a statement of fact and an exhortation. First, it is a statement of fact. Those who are not offended by Jesus are blessed of God. God has shown mercy to these. God has called these both externally by the Word and even internally by the Spirit. God has opened their eyes to see that Jesus is indeed precious and beautiful. They are not offended by Him, but rather they see Him as precious and beautiful and they are drawn to Him. This is by the grace of God. And it is a fact, therefore, that those not offended by Jesus are blessed. They are blessed of the Lord. And they are blessed in life. They are happy because they have Jesus as their Savior. But these words that were given to the disciples of John may also be seen as an exhortation or as a warning. It is as if Jesus had said to these disciples of John, Be careful that you are not offended by me. In other words, I can see that you are tempted to be offended by me, but be careful that you are not offended by me. Do not fall back from me. Do not recoil from me. Draw near to me instead. And I do believe that this is a message that all of us need to hear. For I would imagine that many who follow Jesus are from time to time tempted to be offended by Him. I would imagine that all who follow Jesus are tempted from time to time to pull back from Jesus, to recoil from Him for one reason or the other. We must remember the words of our Lord, Blessed is the one who is not offended by Me. So the question we must ask, or at least one of the questions we must ask of this text, is why did Jesus say this to these two disciples of John the Baptist? The answer must be that some who followed John the Baptist were tempted to pull away from Jesus. That must be the case. That is what is going on here. There were some amongst the disciples of John who were tempted to fall back from Jesus. They were truly wondering and asking the question, is Jesus really the one? And they were tempted to fall away from Him. How could this be? We should remember that John the Baptist was a pretty big deal. Luke tells us about his ministry in chapter 3 of his gospel. It was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Luke tells us that this was in fulfillment of things written by Isaiah the prophet. Crowds of people came to be baptized by John. He called them to repentance and preached the good news to them. They even wondered if he was the Messiah. He insisted that he was not but that Jesus of Nazareth was. And so he directed people to follow after Jesus. At one point, he spoke of Jesus saying, He must increase, but I must decrease. That is John 3.30. And then finally in Luke 3.18, Luke 3.18, we read, So with many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for having Herodias, 
his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John the Baptist was in prison when, looking now at 7.18, the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? John was in prison. And I think this is a very important fact to remember as we seek to understand why there was doubt amongst the disciples of John. In a very short period of time, John and his disciples were thrust from extreme popularity and fame into obscurity. Let us pay close attention to the question that they asked. Let us pay close attention to the question that was asked by John's disciples so that we are clear concerning the meaning of the question itself. Uh, The question asked of Jesus was, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? A more literal translation of the Greek is, Are you the coming one? Uh, This language of the coming one, or the one who is to come, should actually remind us of the preaching of John the Baptist earlier in his life, not long before this event that is here recorded for us. He preached like this, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. That is Luke 3.16. And this language of the coming one, also reminds us of the Old Testament prophecies that use this language in reference to the promised Messiah. For example, listen to Malachi 3, 1-2. There the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. This being a reference to John the Baptist, in fact. And now I continue to quote, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So then, the Messiah was the one who is coming, according to Malachi 3, 1 through 2. Listen also to Psalm 118, verse 26, which speaks of the Messiah, when it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So based upon these prophecies, you can see why the promised Messiah is called the coming one, or the one who is to come. This was a common way of of speaking in those days concerning the promised Messiah. He is the one who is to come. He is the coming one. So when the disciples of John asked Jesus, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? They meant, Are you really the Messiah? Are you really this the promised Messiah, or should we keep looking? So then it is clear that some doubts had arisen amongst the disciples of John regarding Jesus. And it is not so difficult to imagine some of the possible reasons. One reason could be that Jesus and His disciples did live a different lifestyle than John and His disciples. Luke 5.33 hints at this when some critics approached Jesus saying, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. 
Uh, Matthew also mentions this disagreement in his gospel, but from a slightly different vantage point. In Matthew 9.14, we read that the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? John and his disciples lived an ascetic lifestyle. They lived simply in the wilderness often and devoted themselves to fasting and prayer. But Jesus and his disciples lived amongst the people. They ate and drank even with tax collectors and sinners. And so it seems clear that some of John's disciples were troubled by this. And you know how this goes. You can have two different groups of people, two different we might say factions, and they live a different lifestyle and therefore hostilities build as this disagreement concerning the way of life comes to the forefront. It seems clear from Luke and Matthew that there was some tension between the disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus over way of life. The disciples of John fasted and prayed often, but the disciples of Jesus did not fast. Of course, they did pray, but they did not fast. They ate and they drank even with tax collectors and sinners. And so I think this is one of the reasons that some of the disciples of John were offended by Jesus. Why don't you live like we live would have been the question. Another reason could be that Jesus did not live up to their messianic expectations. John said Jesus was the Messiah. John said that he, Jesus, must increase, but that he, John, must decrease But it is possible that many of John's disciples were expecting the Messiah to be a strong king who would conquer the Romans, etc. Perhaps many of them did not expect the Messiah to be so lowly and humble, meek and mild, a servant who would suffer. We know that many were offended by Jesus because of this fact. Many refused to follow Him because they expected a different kind of Messiah, one who would overthrow the Romans and bring... Uh, The kingdom uh, to earth, the kingdom of Israel would need to be restored here on earth. Freedom would need to be granted um, and prosperity would need to come. And Jesus did not seem interested in those things at all. And so some rejected Him. They were offended by Him for this reason. Many were ready to follow Him so long as He would feed them and meet all of their needs in an earthly way. But when it came time for Him to suffer, they fell back. And it is certainly possible that there were many among the disciples of John who were struggling to follow Jesus because He was not turning out to be the kind of Messiah that they were expecting. I'll mention one other possible explanation for the doubting of John's disciples. We must remember that John was in prison. Jesus did not seem interested in setting him free, but allowed him to suffer there. And we know that John's death was near. And this must have been a great disappointment to the disciples of John. Yes, they knew that Jesus needed to increase and John needed to decrease. But this, would Jesus really allow this forerunner of His, this prophet of His, this one who prepared the way for Him to languish and even to die in prison? Indeed, Jesus would. John suffered for the sake of Christ. He suffered greatly. And perhaps some of the disciples of John were troubled by this fact. And so I imagine that it was for all of these reasons and possibly more that the disciples of John began to question if Jesus was really the one. Many of them were perplexed. Some were disappointed. Some were discouraged. They were tempted to pull back from Jesus and to not view Him as the one. Here is another question that I have. Was it only the disciples of John 
who were questioning if Jesus was the Messiah? Or did John have doubts too? Did John have doubts of his own as he was there in that prison cell? Did he begin to wonder if Jesus was really the one? You know, in previous sermons, I suggested that John had doubts too, as I kind of anticipated this passage. I must have been taught this at some point, and I've assumed that this was the case. It was John who was plagued with doubts as he languished in his jail cell with no hope for release, and so he called his disciples to himself, and he sent them to Jesus to get answers for himself. This has been uh, the view that I have held uh, by default all of my Christian life. But as I read commentaries in preparation for this sermon, I was struck by how, by how many commentators, ancient and Reformed, took a different view. Many of them insisted that John did not waver in his faith at all, but sent his disciples to Jesus so that their faith in him would be strengthened as they interacted with him. So John had devoted himself to preparing the way for the Messiah, That's what his ministry was all about. He must increase, I must decrease. Don't follow me, follow Jesus. And here his disciples, he sees, are struggling. And so he calls his disciples to himself and he says to them, Go to Jesus. You go to Jesus. You go see Him face to face. You go ask Him if He is the one or if you should look for another. And see what He says. This is the common view, in fact. Uh, That is found in many ancient and Reformed commentaries on this passage. John Calvin represents this commonly held view in his commentary on a harmony of the evangelists. He says, The evangelists do not mean that John was excited by the miracles to acknowledge Christ at that time as mediator, but perceiving that Christ had acquired great reputation and concluding that this was a fit and sensible time for putting to the test his own declaration concerning him, he sent to him his disciples. In other words, word is brought to John concerning all that Jesus was saying and all that Jesus was doing. And John saw this as an opportune time to convince his own followers that indeed Jesus was the one. And then Calvin goes on to say, The opinion entertained by some that he sent them partly on his own account is exceedingly foolish. So, I will receive the rebuke from Calvin here. He considers this view that the disciples were sent on his own account. He considers it exceedingly foolish, as if he had not been fully convinced or obtained distinct information that Jesus is the Christ. So, Calvin believes that John was fully convinced that he had received Uh, this knowledge from divine revelation. After all, John the Baptist was set apart from conception for this work, was he not? And so Calvin would want us to see that John the Baptist was fully convinced and unwavering. I continue to quote Calvin now. It is very evident that the Holy Herald of Christ, perceiving that he was not far from the end of his journey, and that his disciples, though he had bestowed great pains in instructing them, still remained in a state of hesitation resorted to this last expedient for curing their weakness. He had faithfully labored that his disciples should embrace Christ without delay. He continued entreaties. His continued entreaties had produced so little effect that he had good reason for dreading that after his death they would entirely fall away. And therefore, he earnestly attempted to arouse them from their sloth by sending them to Christ. And then Calvin moves into some application for pastors here, saying, Besides, 
the pastors of the church are here reminded of their duty. They ought not to endeavor to bind and attach disciples to themselves, but to direct them to Christ, who is the only teacher, capital T, teacher. From the beginning, John had openly avowed that he was not the bridegroom, John 3, 29. As the faithful friend of the bridegroom, he presents the bride chaste and uncontaminated to Christ, who alone is the bridegroom of the church. Paul tells us that he kept the same object in view in 2 Corinthians 11.2. And the example of both is held out for imitation to all the ministers of the gospel. I do appreciate Calvin's take on it here, and it is not unique to him. It is found in many other commentators, ancient and reformed. The common interpretation which is found here in Calvin is that it was not John who was doubting, but rather his disciples were doubting. And being confined to a prison cell and being near to the end of his life, the best thing that John could do for his disciples was to send them to Jesus so that they might speak with him and witness his deeds for themselves. And you will notice that Jesus, after performing many miracles in the sight of these disciples of John, and after speaking with them, what did he do except send them back to John so that John could exhort them further to follow after Jesus the Messiah? Again, I'll say I must admit I do like this view and find it compelling. I was always a bit troubled by the thought that John, the one who was set apart from conception to be the forerunner of the Messiah, would be so easily shaken near to the end of his life. Well, whether it was John who was doubting or the disciples of John only is somewhat besides the point, beside the point. The point is that There was some doubt amongst the band of John's disciples. And the solution was to run to Jesus and ask, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And you would do well to notice that Jesus did not answer in word only, but first through deed. Only after answering their question through His deeds did He answer them with a word. Verse 21 of Luke 7 says that in the hour after the disciples of John asked their question, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. You could almost picture this here. Here the disciples of John come. Are you, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And, and perhaps he didn't even say a word to them. He just turned around and began to perform all of these miracles. He performed signs and wonders in response to their question. And only after he did this did he answer them with words saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. These miracles performed by Jesus were signs that He was indeed the Messiah. And He performed these miraculous deeds to confirm that all of His claims were true. These miraculous deeds, notice, were not random, but were carefully chosen to fulfill Old Testament scriptures which spoke concerning the coming Messiah. Particularly, these Deeds that He performed, these miraculous deeds that Jesus performed, were performed in order to fulfill Isaiah chapter 35 and Isaiah chapter 61. 
We read Isaiah 35 at the beginning of this sermon. That prophecy is about the Messiah and what He will accomplish, especially at the consummation. There God speaks to the prophet, saying, Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. So, we know that these things, mentioned by Isaiah the prophet, or in Isaiah 35, 4-6, will be accomplished in full, at the consummation when Christ returns to judge and to make all things new. When will these things happen in full? When will God make the deaf to hear and the lame to walk and the blind to see? When will He make us leap for joy in a consummate sense? Well, when Christ returns, He will heal all. He will make all things new. He will bring us into everlasting joy. Uh, This prophecy in Isaiah 35 is really about the consummation and what God will do through the Messiah at the consummation. But you would do well to notice that Christ gave sight to the blind, made the lame to walk, cleansed lepers, made the deaf to hear, and even raised the dead. And why did He do this? Why did He perform these miracles in particular, except to demonstrate that He was the one of whom Isaiah spoke? And perhaps you notice the language of coming, And that prophecy too. Did you hear it as I read it? Are you the one who is to come? Uh, The disciples of John asked Jesus. Well, here by performing these miracles in fulfillment to Isaiah 35, He also reminds the disciples of John of the language of coming that is found there in that prophecy. Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. And so here is the answer to the question of John's disciples. Are you the one who is to come? Well, watch this. He performs the miracles that Isaiah 35 speaks of. And also, Isaiah chapter 35 does speak of the one who is to come. The one who will come in judgment at the end of time. Also, the one who will come to bring salvation to all of God's peoples. You see, Jesus performed these very miracles to confirm that He was the one of whom Isaiah 35 spoke. Isaiah 61 also stands behind Jesus' answer. Would you listen now to Isaiah 61? I'll read only verses 1 through 3. Go, excuse me, let me back up for just a moment. Rather, listen to Jesus' answer once more to the disciples of John. Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, etc., But at the end of that passage, Jesus says, The poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now listen to Isaiah 61, which is also about the Messiah. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. Remember, Messiah means anointed one. The Lord has anointed me to do what? To bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, 
to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. The point that I am here making is that when Jesus says to the disciples of John, go tell John what you have seen and what you heard, what did they hear except that the poor have good news preached to them? Clearly Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of what Isaiah 61 says. I am the anointed one of Isaiah 61. I am the anointed one who has come to bring good news to the poor, etc. And I say, what an incredible answer this is to the question, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? I do suppose that Jesus could have simply said, yes, I am the one. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? No need to look for anyone else, guys. I'm Him. I'm the one. Yes, I'm the one. But instead, Jesus provided a much more robust answer to these disciples of John who were struggling with doubt, who were tempted to be offended by Him. He did not merely say yes, but in the very hour that they asked their question, He performed many miracles before their eyes. And they were not random miracles, but the very miracles mentioned in Isaiah 35. And not only this, He mentioned the proclamation of the gospel to the poor using the very language of Isaiah 61. So in this way, He sent these disciples of John back to John with an exhortation to compare what they had seen with their own eyes and heard with their own ears with the word of God delivered to the prophets long ago. God promised through the prophets that the Messiah, the, that the Messiah would come, and Jesus demonstrated by His actions and words that He was the one who was to come. Finally, Jesus sent these doubting disciples to John with an exhortation or a warning. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus said, Do not be offended by me. Do not recoil or fall back. Instead, obey the words of your teacher, John, and follow me. If you do, you will be truly blessed. I think it is worth noting that there is a connection between Jesus' statement and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, and the Isaiah 61 passage that Jesus alluded to when He said, The poor have good news preached to them. As you know, Isaiah 61.1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, etc. But the rest of the passage does speak of the blessing that will come to those who belong to this anointed one and who trust in Him. Are you tracking along with me, by the way? Do you see what I am here doing? I'm trying to get you to see that every little word, every little thing done by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was not random. It was meant to link back to Old Testament prophecies so as to say, I have come to fulfill the Scriptures. I have come to fulfill the Word of the Lord. And that even includes this little phrase, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. For... Isaiah 61 does not only speak of the work that the Anointed One would do to proclaim, um, to proclaim uh, victory and to proclaim freedom to the captives. In verse 8 of Isaiah 61, we also, we also hear about the blessings that will come to those who follow this Anointed One or this Messiah. Picking up in Isaiah 61.8, we read, 
and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them that they are an offspring the Lord has blessed. Did you hear it? So, God is going to make an everlasting covenant with the Messiah and those who belong to Him. Their offsprings are going to be known even amongst the nations to the ends of the earth. And when people look at them, that is to say, when people look at those who belong to this Messiah, this anointed one, what will they say concerning Him? They are the offspring the Lord has blessed. These are a blessed people. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. I continue to quote now Isaiah 61. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause the righteous and praise to sprout up before all the nations. It's a beautiful passage here that speaks of the blessing that will befall all who are found in the Messiah. So when Jesus looks at the disciples of John who are tempted to pull back from Him, and He says to them, Blessed is the one who is not offended by Me, He is referring to this passage in Isaiah 61, particularly verses 8 and following. He's reminding the disciples of John of how very blessed all who receive the Anointed One or the Messiah will be. They will be blessed with salvation. They will be clothed with righteousness. They will be made fruitful as if a productive garden. This was an echo of Isaiah 61.9 as Jesus speaks these words to these doubting disciples of John. When Jesus sent these disciples of John back to their teacher, by the way, Jesus regarded John as the greatest of all the prophets. We'll hear about that in the passage that follows. When He sent these disciples of John back to their teacher, He sent them to receive, I say, one heck of a Bible lesson. Are you following me here? By answering them in this way, by answering them not with a simple, yes, I am the one, but by performing these deeds, the very miracles mentioned in Isaiah 35, and by saying, the poor have the good news preached to them, an echo of Isaiah 61, and by referring to blessing, the blessing also of Isaiah 61, he sent these disciples of John back to their teacher to receive instruction from the Scriptures. I I don't know if you can picture it, uh, but here is how I imagine it. These two disciples of John come back to him as he's there languishing in that prison cell, and they begin uh, to give him the news. The blind receive their sight. That's what we saw, John. Blind men were made to see. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. And then Jesus said to us, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. I I imagine these disciples of John delivering the news to their teacher, and then I picture a grin emerging on John's face. Go fetch me the scroll of Isaiah the prophet. Bring it back and make yourselves comfortable. 
we're going to open up the Scriptures together. Do you see now, disciples of mine, that this is indeed the one? This is indeed the promised Messiah, as I have told you all along? I must decrease and He must increase. He is the one. Look at the deeds He is performing. They're in fulfillment of Isaiah 35. There were no chapter breaks back then, but they are in fulfillment to what Isaiah said. And in this place, He preaches good news to the poor. It's in fulfillment to what Isaiah said in that place. And it is right that He has warned you not to be offended by Him and to say to you that you are going to be truly blessed if you follow Him. For that is what Isaiah says in this place. Those who belong to the Messiah will be truly blessed. I think that is what happened when these disciples of John returned to their teacher. They were sent back to receive even more instruction from the Holy Scriptures. And this thought occurred to me. I think John did with his disciples something like what Jesus did with his disciples after he rose from the dead and met with his disciples in his resurrection. I'm sure you remember that story about the two disciples of Jesus walking away from Jerusalem towards a little town called Emmaus. They were discouraged, they were dejected, perhaps we could even say they were tempted to be offended by Jesus. This Jesus that we loved so much, we thought He was the Messiah, we thought He was the King of kings and Lord of lords, but He was badly treated and He was beaten, abused and crucified and He died. And now, instead of loving Him, I almost feel offended by Him. And they began to walk away from Jerusalem. But Jesus met them on that road to Emmaus. He met them in His resurrection. And what did He do with them? After they settled down together, we read that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And their faith was revived. They ran back to Jerusalem to tell the others, and Jesus met with them there and did the very same thing. He taught them from the the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms, and showed them that these Scriptures pointed to Him, and their faith was revived, and they went on to go about the work that the Lord had given them to do. Can you see a theme here? So, in the early portions of the Gospel of Luke, we have a little example of something happening, I think. Christ showing Himself to be the Messiah from the Scriptures, the very thing that He would do at the end of His earthly ministry after He was raised from the dead. He showed Himself to be the Messiah from the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. I think that is what is going on here in this passage. How then does this portion of Scripture which we have considered today apply to us who live so long after these things were accomplished? I have three brief things to mention to you. Three brief suggestions for application. One, this passage should prompt both you and me to ask the question, Am I offended by Jesus? Am I tempted to pull back from Him? Am I tempted to be ashamed of Him for any reason? You know that the world mocks followers of Jesus. You're not ignorant to this fact. The world mocks followers of Jesus. And it may be that you are tempted to pull away from Him for this reason, because you do not wish to be mocked. But you must remember the words of Christ, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Two, the way to not be offended by Jesus is to grow ever more certain that He is the promised Messiah. 
the one who was to come. If Jesus is nothing more than an example to you, if he is simply a teacher or some religious guide, then you will easily pull back from him when following him is unfashionable, when the heat of persecution is turned up, or when life does not go the way that you want it to go. It will be very easy for you to pull back from Jesus when these things come upon you. Because you could obviously go find another moral example, another religious guide. But, if you are certain that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the only Savior of the world, the way, the truth, and the life through whom all must come to the Father, then you will not be so easily offended by Jesus and tempted to turn back from Him. I want you to remember that Luke wrote his gospel for this very purpose, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. He wrote this gospel for this purpose, to give certainty to followers of Jesus, that they would have certainty concerning the things that they have been taught. Those who are uncertain concerning Christ, those who are not sure if He is the one, will easily fall away when trials and tribulations come. But those who are certain will stand. Thirdly, your certainty will grow in at least three ways. One, your certainty will grow as you consider Jesus' works. Do not forget that this Jesus healed the sick, raised the dead, and was even raised from the dead Himself. So consider His works. Two, your certainty will grow as you consider His words, His teachings, as you know, are full of truth and light. His claims were marvelous indeed. He claimed to be God with us. And do not forget that these claims of His were confirmed by the miracles He performed. And three, your certainty that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the only mediator between God and man, will grow as you consider Jesus' words and works in light of the Old Testament Scriptures. For He came in fulfillment to promises and prophecies made long before. So brothers and sisters, I am urging you to love the Scriptures. I am urging you to read the Scriptures often and to listen very attentively when they are read and preached on the Lord's Day. We should especially love to see the way that Christ is revealed in the Scriptures, first in the Old Testament and then in the New the more we know the Scriptures, the more certain we will be that Christ is indeed the Messiah. He is the One who is to come. And the more certain we are concerning His person and work, the more blessed we will be in Him. Let's bow together for prayer. Father in Heaven, do strengthen our faith. I pray that You would keep us from being offended by Christ. That You would, to the contrary, increase our love for Him, increase our faith in Him, increase our certainty. I do pray that You would make us all students of the Holy Scriptures. Lord, move us to read the Scriptures ourselves and help us to listen attentively when they are read and preached. And give us understanding, O Lord. We do thank You, O God, for the way in which the Christ was revealed in the Old Testament through prophecies and promises, through types and shadows. And we thank You for the way in which the Christ is revealed in the New Testament, showing Him as the fulfillment to these things. Lord, give us minds to understand. Give us hearts to believe. 
so that we might be confident in Christ Jesus and walk faithfully in Him all the days of our life. It's in His name that we pray and all of God's people say.